is the Mad River Anthology, and this is Rachel Wheeler, guest host this evening here in the studio with David Holper. David, thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me. And you want to introduce yourself a little bit? I know you teach at CR, and you're a poet. Yes, and um, let's see, I've lived here in the area for about 20 years on and off, and uh, I'm just getting ready to publish my first chapbook, and uh, so that's why um, I'm here, just to share some of that with you. Good, good. Now, the title of the collection is 64 Questions, so can we yes. talk about that title a little? Yeah, that came out of um, some reading I did. I can't, to tell you the truth, I can't remember where I read it. It might have been in John Eldridge. It might have been someplace else, but uh, it really got me to think. It's out of the book of Job, and after Job uh, basically voices his situation and his three friends try to tell him what's wrong with his life, God then speaks, and God asks 64 questions of Job, and which just really cuts to the situation and really humbles Job and, and gets him to realize his situation. And so that's what the title poem of the, the piece is called. And then the collection springs in a lot of different directions from there, but some of the key questions have to do with faith. Great. Great. Do you want to read a poem about yeah, I'll read the, uh, the, here's the title poem called 64 Questions. And, and it's not, you know, this isn't spoken to Job, it's rather spoken to all of us, not just to, to those, you know, Christians, but to anyone thinking about um, the quality of life in the present and uh, how we're going to live it. So here we go. If he were to ask you this morning some questions about yourself, would the questions cut like a razor through the fat of your being? This hunger whose teeth cannot resist another bite of some sweetness. This hunger that unthinkingly devours more than is needed, devours until somewhere, someone, skin brown as a nut, goes hungry, or until this other must work for less than nothing, subtracting out her days a meal at a time, giving away what her hands were never meant to hold, so that even the earth goes hungry. If he were to ask such questions... Would you say that nothing you've done has mattered? Not really. Never have you saved a life, fed the hungry, visited those locked into the cages of their selves, comforted the grieving, or even bowed before another's feet, lowered them into the warm water, and washed away the stain of all that we so hungrily desire. Thanks. Yeah. I remember that there are other poems in there that talk about... Um, things in the world that aren't right and how maybe we're, we're questioning about them or um, how questioning of ourselves sometimes how we can make a difference or what we should be doing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there, there are a number of poems. I guess they're sort of protest poems or, or uh, poems in which I'm just thinking about things that, that bother me deeply and that I wanted to give voice to. And uh, I guess it's from going to a lot of open mics and listening to people rant mm -hmm. that some of these poems, they don't quite follow the same direction, but uh, they address similar kinds of concerns. And so there are a number of poems like that. There's one that, um, that I wrote. I had been out, it had been the fall, and I'd been out raking leaves in the backyard. And I, it was just one of those news days that just was so bleak and depressing. So many people were dying in the world, and there was so much misery. And I, I began to think, why is it like this? And so I wrote this poem called The Meditation on Leaves. And I think it's, uh, by the way, I want to say, it's 
seems very appropriate right now with the situation that's going on in Israel because I felt exactly that way listening to the news last night. So I think it's apropos. It is the season in which leaves fall. They fall as if for no apparent reason, having already done their work, the simple magic of turning sunlight into sugar. Now these wayward travelers, cherry leaves and bay, redwood, they flutter adrift on the wind, landing lightly on my lawn, where I stand like a sentinel, rake in hand, and gather them to myself to burn. How unlike people are leaves, it comes to me, as I tug them in under the shrieking tines. For we, so unlike the leaves, misapprehend our purpose. Or in seeking our reason d'etre, we land upon the wrong choices, surely nothing as good as their metamorphosis of sunlight. And thus, we learn to kill one another, harnessing our minds to the art of war. I see this clearly as the sky darkens with January's icy rain that will soon sweep over me, too, every nation on earth arming itself to the teeth to destroy this other that infects the land just beyond its border, one hundred times, no, a thousand times more ever spent on weapons than food. And if not actual war, we wait and gather up weapons like shiny toys, Kalishnikovs, smart bombs, F-14s, STS radar, peacekeeper missiles, biological weapons, nukes, and should we be unlucky enough to gather all the weapons we can afford, we either ruin ourselves in the effort or find that it is not enough. No, never enough. So we strive in our purposeful madness to build newer and better weapons, depleted uranium shells, neutron bombs, laser cannons, Star Wars systems to slaughter one another and unwittingly denude the earth of all life. Again, I rake. The leaves I note even in their falling, the darkness spreading over the land now, until I am all but obliterated. The leaves find a place to land, a simple place where they might unmake themselves, and in so doing make a bit of earth on which something more shall grow. But we? What are we made for, I wonder? Surely not this. And then I bend to set the flames to work, and as the fire feeds, I ask myself, for what forgotten, or yet undiscovered purpose were we set upon this earth. That's great. Thanks. It reminds me a little bit um, in terms of vocation uh, as a poet, whether the vocation of poet and and kind of prophet go together in a way. Is that something you think about? Yeah, I thought about that a lot. You know, um, I don't think that's where I started with this collection. I started by writing more um, a series of poems that were more literary focused but that's definitely where the where the collection went in the later poems Um, I started thinking about vocation a lot and uh, and not just my vocation too, other people's vocations and um, for instance there's this one a friend of mine uh, Pam is a teacher and one night we were in a group, and she was talking about uh, this article she had read about a pastor who was so humble that he always set up the chairs for the service. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then she got to talking about how, you know, we actually all talked about those things that annoy us that we have to do, for, you know, for a living. And so she said, you know, she teaches kindergarten, and she said the thing that she does is tie shoelaces. Mm-hmm. And uh, she she did this thing, great thing, and it reminded me of Helen Kubler-Ross's um, whole analogy about dying and, you know, the, the stages of dying. 
And so this was like the stages of tying shoelaces. So <laughs> this is for Pam. It's called tying shoelaces. She said, I tie shoelaces. I bend down to the level of my kindergartners and tie their shoes. I have tied thousands of shoelaces. I have tied shoes in the rain, in the mud. I have tied these laces, hating every minute of it, even though I have often thought or tried not to think of how the boys miss when they go to the bathroom or where these feet have been, outside where the dogs sometimes roam the playground, leaving little presents along the way in which these students often unknowingly step. I have hated this job. Yes, hated pulling the tangles, hated the way that the manufacturers of shoelaces now make the laces out of materials that don't stay knotted, no matter if I double the knots and then doubled them again. I've resented the fact that these kids couldn't do this simple thing for themselves. But that, too, has passed after the thousandth shoe. From there, I've moved on to weariness. I've bent before these pleading children as if weighed by the rock of ages. I'd sigh, look into their big sad eyes, and then away, and painfully, wearily, tied the little knots that held. But that show, too, unraveled. On days like this one, I now do this simple gesture out of love. I go to my knees at the child's feet and receive the laces into each hand, as if it were a gift they were giving me. And yes, because it is a gift, I never forget to smile. And if it is a good day, as each one surely is, I will receive a smile in return. That's great. Thanks. Maybe you could say something about what what um, your writing practices like. I know most of the poems are like that. They're kind of... Um, the line lengths vary and yeah. um, stanzas vary, but you do have a couple of forms, I think, a sonnet. I do, yeah. Else. I have uh, a sonnet, and then there's um, one that I I wrote um, that's, uh, uh, well, I tried all sorts of different forms, actually, early on. I, I tried sonnets and mm-hmm. villanelles, and then I've tried some uh, freer-formed ones that, um, but that are still, you know, um, in form, like for instance, I the probably the most recent one that I wrote is called Litany, and it's probably uh, the one um, that most d- deeply probes some of the questions you know uh, that that trouble me, and it's written in iambic pentameter, and a lot of people don't write in this kind of form, and it's in ten line stanzas, um, and it's called Litany. So, uh, yeah, I, I shared it with a friend of mine. She said. It seems like a form, but I don't know what it is. Uh-huh. So I guess I just invented this. Um, and and it follows on another poem about climbing mountains, too. So um, I will say that when I was growing up uh, in high school, I lived in Marin County. So uh, f- friends and I would go climb Mount Tam and spend the night on the peak and then get up the next morning and hike down off the peak. And it was really great because you'd go up there and the mountaintop would be up in the sunlight in the morning so you could see the sunrise over the Bay Area, but everywhere else would be covered in fog, so you were like up on the top of an island. So that's kind of the image I'm thinking of in writing this. I had gone to climb a mountain to reach and touch his mighty face, but he said, look down below. And I did. I gazed down upon the shadowed world, the world we have so smartly built, and I saw once again how ingenious we have become in shielding ourselves from the necessary difficulties of life, from wind, from rain, from the good work in the soil, from sun, from life, giving over our lives into the care of others, experts, corporations, 
all those who would ease us away from the earth's embrace and leave us struggling, sinking in the mire of our own waste. For we have eclipsed ourselves in needless artifice, with cars and planes and computers cashing in on the earth's wealth, we gut the last remaining bits of ancient sunlight from the earth's belly, burning all manner of coal and gas and oil, belching out poisons on land and sea and air, fouling everything we put our hands to. And all the time we thought we had remaining, as one after another the lights of some species we extinguish, tiny flames blown out, leaving us in all our hubris to say, Everything is fine. The hands of the clock we have set in motion tick toward midnight. As the air warms, as the ice melts, as the earth sucks dry our crops, we argue over whether or not what we have set in motion can be reversed. We buy oil from our enemies and enrich them so that we might fight on forever. We waste ourselves in this battle to ignore the obvious, the earth, and our place upon it. We let lawyers and trade negotiators fritter away forests and rivers and everything, set the rainforests ablaze so that we might have cheap hamburgers that we buy from our running cars. And I look at what we've done to ourselves and wail. How did we come to this late hour, I ask? But the answer is all around me in the buzz of humanity. We have put a price upon life. We have entrusted corporations and governments and institutions we do not even understand with the things that matter most. Clean air, clean water, a living soil from which we too might grow in growing something good. We have allowed this trespass against life. We have traded convenience and consumption for the earth's real wealth. And in so doing, we now feel alone and think that God is dead. But looking up into the face of God, I realize he's not dead. He has always been present for all who have awoken our spirits from such lethargy as now plagues us have gone into the wilderness to seek answers. Think of them now as the shadows loom over us, of Christ gone off for 40 days, of Buddha beneath the bow tree, of Muhammad living in a cave, of Moses gone up the mountain to learn of what rule would guide us. Yes, it is in the cradle of life that God made us, and it is in the wilderness where we will find the answers once again. And seeing this all clearly from the mountaintop, I recognize before us all the great choice which we must make quickly. We must decide whether we will march to our own funeral, pulling the earth in upon our heads, or whether we will realize our role as fit stewards of the earth and turn back from greed, from the madness to destroy one another, and recognize the sanctity of life, including ourselves, and begin to restore that which we did not make, but which has been entrusted to us forever. And seeing this choice, I choose hard for life. I think I remember that that's the last poem in the collection. Is that right? It is indeed. A lot of it is really kind of dour, and then you get to the end, and the choosing of life is such a great affirmation at the end. I think in those last few poems, that's what, you know, I, I was troubled with questions of death and of just kind of where we are in our in our world civilizations and uh and i think it was it was a question of like how was i going to face all that and i realized i wasn't going to face it at all i was Mm going to turn it over to god and 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 in that figure it out Mm -hmm. you know and and through him figure it out because uh, you know it's just i think it's too bleak people look at it in the situation in the world today and it it's it doesn't it isn't very hopeful right yeah 
And in thinking about Joe, I mean, his situation was more personal tragedy, and you've made it a larger kind of metaphor for the state of humanity, I guess, in the world, which is an interesting yeah. enlargement. I like that. Yeah, and I and I think too personally, you know, some of the collection dealt with um, just questions of mortality. Um, you know, as I've gotten older, um, I come from a very fa- small family. And, uh, you know, I'm definitely the older generation now, just the, the last of my parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles, they're all gone now. So, you know, one of the poems in there was dealing with this question, too, of mortality. It was about my mom dying. And, and uh, you know, that was a troubling time for me. It wasn't that long ago. And so yeah, that's one of the poems in here, too, in the later part of the collection. So mm-hmm. is it okay if I read that yeah, one? Yeah, I like that one. Yeah. Is that breastbone? Uh, no. No, no that, this one's called Graveside. Okay. And this was... Uh, you know, I, I, I kind of related to what C.S. Lewis went through when Joy Davidman died. Um, you know, he had a real grappling with, like, well, well what, you know, who's God? Where is he? And, and I remember him saying that, um, or writing, that he felt that God had uh, shut the, the doors on him and double-bolted them, and you know. And then later, in thinking about it, he said that it, it wasn't that at all. It's that God was right there, but he was so needy. It was like a child, you know, just needing to be held and and it was that neediness that prevented him from seeing that God was right there with him mm. and and so this one was about uh, going to my mother's funeral it's called graveside the thing you would say if you could speak to her again is some final word something unsaid or something not said often enough or maybe some way to unsay those things you now regret as the sunlight falls in pieces on the wet earth and the faithful gather around your mother's gray coffin, standing before hers with a long-stemmed red rose in hand, trying carefully to avoid the prick of words, words weighted with wet earth, with the funeral director's admonition about not standing too close to the crumbling edge of the dark pit, lest it collapse under you. And now it is your turn to go, rose in hand, thorn pressed purposely now into your thumb so as to hold off the deeper thing, for which words will necessarily fail. Your turn to stand at the edge of everything that you would just this moment gladly give up just to know where she abides, to know beyond the shadow of where the acacia tree shatters sunlight profusely across the crumbling lip of wet earth, from where, after you are gone, the workers will come with shovels and lower her into the waiting darkness, the heavy, wet earth, that will not yield her up again. Is there a way in which recording experiences like that helps gonna get us through them? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, it 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 helped me think again about why that was such a difficult day, and and also to think about you know um, being that older generation. I have three young children, and. Um, in what direction this generation is going to go. My family was Jewish on, on both my mother and father's side, and they were not believers at all. They were like devout atheists. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think it didn't serve them very well. Their lives um, were purposeful, I guess, but um, there was a lot of unhappiness and a lot of anger in my family. And uh, so this generation seems to be going in a better direction. And, and I think it's really important to witness those those passings and and um, and also to think about the direction that I want to take my life and my kids' life. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, having some compass 
you know, not to just blunder along in the darkness. Yeah, yeah. When I was looking through it again recently, your collection, the sonnet, the, your son's name is Jacob, is yes, that right? Yes, Okay, right. so that was a sonnet for yeah, your son. I, right. I was just doing the biblical yeah. <laughs> association or something with yeah. that. Oh, that's great. So that's kind of, and that's near the end, so it's kind of a passing yeah, on or something or thinking about the future. Definitely, and, um, and I think that there was very much that in mind, uh, because I wrote that sonnet shortly after my father died, just a few, a few years later when my son turned one, I wanted to do something to celebrate his first birthday. Mm-hmm. So would you like me to read that one? Yeah. yeah. Do you have I, it? No, but you do. So do. why don't you pass it over to me? Sure. I didn't bring the whole, the whole collection. Okay. Sonnet for Jacob. If wisdom I could impart to you today were written within this fleeting hour's breath, what would that wisdom be? What would I say to recommend a life that swings true north? Should I speak of history's lessons learned to guide you from the shoals of past mistakes, past pride or lust or greed, which souls do harm and leave corrupted there within their wake? I'm more inclined to raise the standard higher, to set for you the bar that you alone do set, and know within yourself what need requires, so when time's awful hands do close and let you pass into God's great house, you'll know that everything you've done was done just so. I really like that. Yeah. That was really fun to write, and it, oh. it's great to, you know, have poems for your kids yeah. as well. I think. Oh, do you yeah. share them with them? Do you oh, read yeah, to absolutely. Them? Okay. I do. You know, they don't, they don't read all of this stuff, but the ones that are about them, definitely. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So I know re- in recent years, or I don't know if that's plural or not, you were doing a little fiction. How has that changed or done any impact on your poetry? Um, I think one of the things that... Um, I wrote a novel a few years ago. And by the way, I want to say that um, I'm really grateful uh, for the opportunity to have done so much writing. And that came out of um, um, College of the Redwoods granting me a sabbatical a few years ago in which I wrote a novel and then wrote the bulk of this collection of poetry. So it's, you know, this is great to finally see some of this coming to fruition. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm really thankful for that. Um, I think I wrote the novel primarily first, and and I wrote that about nine drafts of that, and and I think just the discipline of sitting down every day and working at it, uh, I hadn't done that in a number of years, and so it was wonderful to have that, and I found that um, it required hours and hours and hours of just sitting, as you know, and just writing and and plotting and and rewriting and um, thinking about where I wanted to take the novel. And then I found that when I turned to the poetry, after I kind of set the novel aside and and decided that it was as finished or as far as I could take it, I noticed that the poetry, I could go out in an evening and rather than write a chapter and then polish that chapter for a week or so, I could write a poem in an evening and then maybe do two or three or four or five drafts of the poem and it would be done relatively rapidly. Mm -hmm. So it was... um, I don't know. It was a great burst of energy. So the collection of poetry emerged much, much faster than um, than the novel. And it was such a, I don't know, it it was like 
having carried a, a heavy pack for a long time and then putting that down and working in a whole nother form and just enjoying that greatly. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. so did you envision the whole collection as a collection and wrote the poems for mm, it? No, or? I didn't. And, okay. and just lately I've been reviewing other people's um, poetry for, uh, for a magazine. And, uh, and I've noticed that like when I look at other people's poems, you know, in a collection, oftentimes they're shaped much more directly. And so, no, mine came about by accident entirely. Okay. It was just where my, where the muse happened to be striking that day. Okay. Yeah. Well, we have time for maybe one more poem, and I know you have kind of a funny, funny instructional one. For, oh yes, this for is poets. called. Yes, this is. Uh, this is. Uh, Gary Snyder had a poem about how to be a poet um, mm-hmm. in Rip Rap and other poems, and uh, that I'd read many years ago. So this one's called "How to Be an American Poet," and advice on how to do it. So it's. And here is how it goes. Don't eat till evening, no matter what growls in your gut. Better yet, wait until the gnawing alters your vision, unknots the assumption on which dollars and cents seem founded. Sell something. Barbecue your television. Invite strangers to cart away your motherboard. Use the other hand from now on. Ride a bike until your legs harden, or walk to the speed of stratocumulus inching across the sky. Slow to the pace of wildflowers, turning with the sun's great slow arc. Stride out to the edge of town and stare at the place that forgets, where dust and starlight seep into the uneven surface of the earth, where the wind sings a dirge of all you're sure of. Think of open doors. Imagine windows that are open on mirrors where you can no longer surface. When silence echoes in your blood, whisper back the new language one in which the shadows are unfitted with their forms, one in which the body you thought you inhabited puts its history aside, the sagging waistline, the wrinkles, the scars, suffering, your voice, the one you thought sang these cold stars into words. Now, little God, hush to the sound in the darkness as he whispers your true name. Thanks. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about the reading that will, or when this collection is coming out and a reading that you'll be um, having next month. Yeah. um, The collection is actually out now, and if you want to order it, you can just go online and uh, look under March Street Press and and order yourself a copy. Um, But uh, I'll also have copies available at the reading, which is going to be at the Accident Gallery, and it's going to be in the last uh, Saturday of February the 28th, and it's going to be at 7.30 p.m. So I hope lots of people come out. Uh, we'll probably have some music and me reading, and uh, just hope it'll be a fun evening. Good. Yeah. Good. Well, it's nice to have you on the show, Dave. Well, it's great. Thanks so much, Rachel. Sure. You've been listening to David Holper. This is the Mad River Anthology. I'm Rachel Wheeler. If you have questions or comments about this program, please call our listener comment line at 826-6089. On our blog, an online archive of past programs can be found at madriveranthology.wordpress.com. The show is also available in iTunes. The Mad River Anthology airs the second and fourth Sundays of the month at 10 p.m. and is produced for KHSU, located at Humboldt State University in Arcata, California. Maybe your friends think I'm just a stranger. 
Meet you on God's goal.